Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. John 12. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those very uncomfortable situations where all the attention was drawn on you. I remember when I was growing up, sometimes you'd go to a restaurant and it would be your birthday and your family and friends would celebrate you and the wait staff would come out and sing some goofy song and clap at you and say, happy birthday, have happy birthday, all this kind of weird stuff and everybody's looking at you and you feel really, really uncomfortable. Some of us don't like the attention being drawn on us. Now, some of you may really like the attention being drawn to yourself and there's those times in public where it just is really awkward. I think about those scenes that you see where um, a fiancé gets proposed to on the jumbotron at a basketball game where everybody can see and the bride-to-be is mortified because the, the guy thought it would be really hilarious to, to propose to her on the jumbotron. So everybody's looking, and what's even more awkward is if she says no. I mean, think about that. That would be really, really awkward. There's some things that are just done in public where you look at the person and you're like, you know, that's just a little off. That's just a little weird. That person just needs to calm down. It's making me uncomfortable. Well, that's what happens in John chapter 12. Mary does something that makes everybody uncomfortable, especially Judas Iscariot. So I want to begin this morning by asking a few important questions about your relationship to Christ. Fundamental questions. Here's question number one. How valuable is Jesus to you? I mean, how valuable is he? We've been in the Gospel of John for months now. We've seen Jesus in action. The question, how valuable is Jesus to you? Is he your all in all? Is he the resurrection and the life? Is he the one whom you give all of your devotion? Is he your treasure? It's a question of worth. It's a question of value. You see, what you value, what you honor, what you give worth to, you spend time with. You obsess over You're captivated by, you're mesmerized by, whatever it is you treasure, you value, you're going to give all your time and energy to that person, to that thing. The question is, is Jesus who you treasure, who you value? Okay, second question. If Jesus is worth worshiping and you do value him, is your intensity of love for him the same as his value for his glory. Here's the question. Do you love Jesus with the same intensity as his worth and value? Augustine has famously said in his confessions, God, you've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Your heart will always be restless until it finds true rest in Jesus. You were made, I was made, 
to glorify God. What does the Westminster Shorter Confession say? We exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you and I were made, to find pleasure in God, to glorify God, to find rest in God, to find Christ as our treasure. Jonathan Edwards has written extensively on this this pursuit of Christian joy and the religious affections. I don't encourage you to read it because it may take you a few years. I read a few chapters, I'm actually a few paragraphs, and I have to backtrack. What did Jonathan Edwards really say? Let me paraphrase his wording to you because I think what he says is very important. He says, and this is a paraphrase, the things of our faith are so great that the only suitable response of our hearts should be nothing less than lively and powerful. Nothing else should move our hearts with passion as in Christ, and nothing is so ugly and disgusting as lukewarmness. You want to know something that's disgusting and ugly, he says? Look at a lukewarm Christian whose passion for Christ has waned. The Bible is very clear. You and I were created to find joy, to find hope, to find satisfaction in Christ alone. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. What does God offer you? Pleasures evermore. Joy, fullness of joy. In Christ, we find the maximum of joy. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself. Find joy in the Lord. Find strength in the Lord. Find your hope in the Lord. And you find out that he will begin to orient your desires of your heart to be what he has desired for you when you find your joy in him. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You remember that old song? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Paul commands us here to rejoice. Philippians, oh, that was Philippians. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Rejoice always. And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1.8, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that it's inexpressible and filled with glory. None of us here has seen Jesus, but we love him. And we have a joy inexpressible in him him or at least that's the way it should be if you claim the name of christ this is what we were made for you and i were created to rejoice in the lord to glorify the lord to find pleasure in the lord to find hope in the lord to find meaning to find satisfaction to find purpose to to glorify god and enjoy him forever and so when we come to this passage of scripture we see mary anointing the feet of Jesus in an extravagant display of, of worship. And so as we read just these eight verses, here's the main point of the passage of Scripture for this morning. Gospel-centered worship occurs when your love for Jesus matches the worth of Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. How worthy is Jesus? Pretty worthy, right? Does your love for Jesus match the worth of Jesus? Where's your love for Christ this morning? We will see it graphically, beautifully, poignantly illustrated for us in this 
story. So let's read together John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember last week, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and Lazarus's sisters were Mary and Martha. So here we go. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, which is what Martha does with her giftedness, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put inside it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, a word needs to be said about this event. Matthew, Mark, and John all record this event. Luke, on the other hand, records a different event, okay? So Luke talks about a sinful woman, a prostitute in a Pharisee's house anointing Jesus. That's a different story. That's not the same story that this is, okay? So Mary is not a prostitute. She's probably a well-to-do Jewish woman. Matthew, Mark, and John tell one story of the anointing. Luke tells a different story. So I don't want you to get confused when you read these different stories of the anointings in the Gospels. But it's important to look at the timing. What does your Bible say? Verse 1, six days before the Passover. It's Passover. Okay, so this is Saturday night before Sunday, Palm Sunday. And this is all, from here on out to the rest of the Gospel of John, it is Passover week, leading up to Passover. What happens at Passover? They kill the Passover lamb. Now, who's the ultimate Passover lamb? Jesus. This has undertones of Jesus being the Passover lamb who's going to go to the slaughter to be crucified for our sins. And it's a festive banquet. They gave a great dinner. The the word dinner there probably really means more of a banquet. And Lazarus is there, which is an amazing thing. Think about the visual imagery of Lazarus sitting there eating food with everybody around. What had happened just earlier? He was dead four days. Remember, Martha said, don't open that tomb. He stinketh. He smells. He'd been raised from the dead. He was a living miracle that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he's eating there, and so everybody's coming to see what's going on. we got to get in on this. we got to hear about this Jesus guy. we got to hear about this Lazarus. we got to see this with our own eyes. So there's this great banquet. Everybody's there. Now, it could have just been Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and their family, but most scholars believe it could have been the whole village had joined together in this banquet in honor of Jesus. But verse 3 tells us what Mary does in this extravagant act of gospel-centered worship. We're going to look at more detail on this, but she takes 11 ounces. The ESV says a pound. Literally, if you take the, the Roman calculation, it was 11 ounces of this expensive perfume of nard, pure nard, and she anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, and the entire house is filled with the fragrance. Now, where did the motivation 
for Mary to do this come from? Why is she the only one in the house who breaks this expensive alabaster flask of perfume and gets down and anoints Jesus' feet? Where does that motivation come from? It doesn't come from a pastor standing up and talking you into it. It doesn't come from reading a motivational book to help give you warm fuzzies. It doesn't come from being riled up at a, at a Christian conference. Where does this come from? Where does this passion come from? Well, I think we see some clues in the text. One in the Gospel of Luke and two right here. Here's the first thing I think about Mary, where this motivation came from. First of all, she spent time at the feet of Jesus in sweet communion, learning his word. You remember the story? Go back to Luke chapter 10, 38-42, I think it'll be on your screen. This is another story we see of Mary and Martha, but we see something about Mary. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What did Mary do? She sat at the feet of Jesus, learning, communing, fellowshipping. And Jesus says, Martha, she chose the good thing, the good portion. So somehow there was in Mary this communion with Christ this relationship with Christ where she sat at his feet in sweet communion, learning. But secondly, I think she believed in his power to raise the dead as the resurrection and the life. What had she just witnessed? She saw her brother raised from the dead. She heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. She saw the power of the gospel right before her eyes. Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb. She saw that. She believed it. She saw it with her own eyes. She understood this power. But thirdly, and this is more of an opinion, so take it as that, I think she had a keen awareness of the beauty of the gospel. Now, why do I say that? What does Jesus tell her in verse 7? Leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You won't always have me here. Mary knows something's going on here. I think she's spiritually aware that what she's doing to Jesus is a precursor, a prefiguring, a prediction of his burial. Which means what? He had to die first. I think Mary understood the significance of what was going to happen in the next few days. That her Savior was going to die, be buried, and rise again. And so in a sense, she, quote-unquote, anoints him while he's still alive when you would anoint somebody who had died. So it's the same with us today. How do you worship Jesus with the passion and intensity that Mary does? Well, it comes from spending time with the Lord, 
sitting at his feet in sweet communion, learning from his word, spending time in prayer, private personal worship. It also comes in believing the power of the gospel, believing that he is the resurrection and the life. I love what Spurgeon said about this text. He says, you must sit at his feet or you will never anoint them. He must pour his divine teaching into you or you will never pour out a precious ointment upon him. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think that's what happened with Mary. Now, let's examine this powerful display of gospel-centered worship. Does her love for Jesus match the worth of Jesus? Matthew and Mark tell us that it was an alabaster flask. Matthew and Mark don't name who the disciples were that chided her. It just says the disciples scolded her. John focuses in very, very detailed on, it's more detailed, John's description, Mary and Lazarus. John names who it is. It's Lazarus. I mean, not Lazarus. It's Judas Iscariot. So let's look at five aspects of her worship. And by extension, let's emulate her in these aspects of worship. First of all, her worship was costly. It was costly. The the text says in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment. We also see Judas's comments there in verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Now what's 300 denarii? A denarii is a day's wage. That's a year's salary. So let's just do some math. Let's say back then the average day salary was $4. So how much would the alabaster flask of ointment be? Mickey, where are you? <laughs> Around $10,000, right? $10,000. Let's just, let's just pick a number. It was, it was a year's salary for a working person back in that culture. That's a lot. That was probably the most expensive item that Mary had in her house. Now, we do not know how she got this alabaster flask of ointment. Was it a family heirloom? Which was very, very important? We don't know. Was it something she'd saved years and years to get? We don't know. All we know was that it was valuable. It was extravagant. It was costly. And what does she do? She breaks it open and she uses it to anoint Jesus. It was costly. It cost her something. Let me ask you a question. What are you sacrificing to worship Jesus? What are you giving up that is so valuable to you that you would trade it in to have Jesus? You know, oftentimes I think our worship of Jesus, to be honest with you, is convenient and comfortable. We like to worship Jesus on our terms when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, when it's not costly. We as Americans don't like to give up our comforts and our convenience. We don't like the cost of taking up our cross and following him. And here's the problem. It's because we don't find Jesus truly valuable. If he were valuable, if he were worthy, 
in our eyes as he truly is, then no amount of money, no amount of success, no amount of fame, no amount of nothing would compare. We'd give it all up to worship him. Her worship was costly. It cost her a year's salary of this special fragrant ointment, perfume. Worship that's not costly may not be true worship. It may just be convenience and comfort. Number two, her worship was genuine. Now notice in verse three, it was pure nard. Now what's nard? It's kind of a weird, not a nerd, nard or spike nard. This was a very exotic plant that had spikes from northern India that had this amazing, powerful, beautiful smell. It's pure, unadulterated nard. So it had to be imported somehow from India to come to Palestine where Mary is. And the language says it was pure nard. It was genuine. It was not watered down. It was unadulterated, pure, 100% nard. Think about worship for a moment. Is your worship pure? Is it genuine? Or is it watered down? Is it diluted? Is it hypocritical? Is it half-hearted? I think about going to the spice aisle at your local grocery store. What do you see there? Pure vanilla extract versus imitation vanilla flavoring. Okay? There's the pure stuff, pure virgin olive oil versus some, let spam. Okay? Not spam, Pam. <laughs> whatever. You can tell how much I cook. Spam, Pam, whatever it's called. You're laughing because you know which one would you rather cook with? Pure virgin olive oil or Walmart generic Pam. Not Spam, Pam, Pam, Spam. This was genuine. She's holding nothing back. It's pure nard. It's expensive nard. She's pouring it out. It's a year's salary, thousands and thousands of dollars. Jesus tells another woman, earlier in the Gospel of John, about worship. In John 4, 23-24, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. We to have this genuine, pure worship of Jesus that's unadulterated, that's not diluted. Psalm 86.11, I like the way the NIV words it. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. Lord, I don't want to worship you with a divided heart. What's a divided heart? My heart's going this way. My heart's going that way. I've got all these distractions. No, I want a single-focused heart. I want a pure heart. I want an undiluted heart. I want a, I want a fixed heart on you, Jesus, and only you. I don't want a divided heart. I want a pure heart. So her worship was costly. Her worship was genuine. But number three, her worship was humble. Now what does she do? She anoints Jesus' feet. Now normally you'd, you'd anoint a person's head. Back in the Old Testament, prophets priests and kings the three offices in israel were anointed on the head 
as a way to set them apart for service. Also in that culture, when you had a joyous or a festive occasion, you would anoint the head. We, back then, it was probably their, their version of hair product or shampoo or whatever. It was a joyful thing. You'd anoint someone's head. It's a, it's a picture of a joy. You would never, never, as a good-standing Jewish woman, you would never, especially at the dinner table, never bend down and wash a person's or anoint a person's feet. That was reserved for the most menial of slaves. Jesus is going to show us that in the next chapter. She does what a slave would do. She bends down and she realizes, I'm here before the king, the Messiah, and I have no right to anoint his head. All I can do is worship him at his feet. So she humbles herself in the most menial of positions, submissively goes and worships him washes his, anoints his, his feet. There's kingly overtones to this. Because what's going on? This is Saturday night. What's going to happen the next day? It's in the same chapter. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and they're going to be waving palm branches saying, Hosanna to the king of the Jews. She knows he's the anointed king. She knows She has no right to anoint his head. He already is the Messiah. All she can do is humbly bend down and and wipe his feet in an act of humility, which is reserved for the lowest of slaves. And most scholars believe they were probably from a well-to-do family. They weren't slaves. She's not demanding from Jesus. She's serving Jesus. She knows who she is before Jesus. She knows that she's a helpless sinner, that she has no rights, and she humbly serves before her king. I wonder if you worship Jesus that way. 1 Peter 5, 6 says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Is your worship for Jesus humble? Or is it demanding? Now, this would have been very radical. Caught everybody off guard. Whoa, Mary. Calm down. You're making us uncomfortable. What are you doing here? That's, that's a year's worth of salary. You're breaking it, and then, and then you're bending down, and you're, you're wiping Jesus' feet. That, that's, that's uncalled for at the dinner table. That, that's not becoming. What she does next is going to freak everybody out. If that's outlandish, if that's outrageous... Fourth thing we see is her worship was passionate. What does she do? She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. Now you may think, well, that doesn't make much sense to me. What's the big deal there? No self-respecting Jewish woman would ever let her hair down in public. By law and by custom, they had to keep their hair bound. She lets it down. Which would have been highly offensive. Which means this. Mary could care less what anybody else around her thought. Her only thought in that moment was, I'm in the presence of Jesus. It's an audience of one. He's the only one I care about. I don't care if I look foolish. I don't care if I break social taboos. I'm going to worship him passionately. And I'm not going to use a towel. I'm going to use my hair. Now, what was a woman's hair? The Bible says a woman's hair was her glory. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, a woman's hair is her glory, which means in that culture, a woman had long hair. It was her glory. It was what made her feminine. It's what made her beautiful. It's what defined a woman. You knew a woman was a woman back in the Old Testament times and the New Testament times because she had long hair. And so what's she doing? The thing that defined her womanhood, the thing that was her glory, she's using that to serve Jesus. So instead of bringing glory to herself, she's bringing glory to the Lord in the giving of her hair, if you will, on his feet. And here's what's amazing. Not once does Jesus tell her to stop it. Do you, ever, do you see it in the text? Jesus is saying, now wait a minute, Mary, this is way too much. You're making me uncomfortable. You're making everybody else uncomfortable. Stop making a fool of yourself now, Mary, before this gets out of control. Do you see Jesus doing that? He lets her wipe his feet with her hair in passionate worship. There are times when we should not shy away from passionate displays of worship. Now, we need to be wise about this. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves just for that sake. But oftentimes, do you find yourself not worshiping Jesus passionately because you're afraid of what others are going to think? Corporate worship. My hands are here, but my hands really want to be here. But I'm afraid if I raise my hands, people around me are going to start thinking. Or maybe you want to come down and pray at the altar because you just feel led to do that. And, somebody, and you're thinking, oh, everybody must think I got some major sin in my life. Or maybe there's times at the workplace where people are talking smack about everything that they shouldn't be. And you know you should speak up and give glory to Jesus and you don't because you're shy. You're more concerned about what other people think than about Jesus. Mary could care less. She breaks the alabaster flask, years worth of salary, anoints Jesus' feet as a humble servant with her hair in an act of passionate, extravagant worship. Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 10. Matthew's version of this. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? What she's done is a beautiful thing to me. It's a beautiful thing, Jesus says. What she's done is a beautiful thing. Would that everybody else in the house had done this. You're getting on her for doing this. Would that you all would have been at my feet. Because I'm not going to be here much longer, is what Jesus is saying. She's the only one that took the risk, that took the cost to worship Jesus in that manner. And the disciples are chiding her, especially Judas. But fifth, her worship was influential. Now you think, well, why is it influential? Here's the point. Everybody else around her is going to experience this worship, aren't they? Nobody's going to be immune to this. Where does she do it? At dinner, in public, with what? Something that smells. Have you ever been in like in a car or like a bus where somebody gets, don't ever put the perfume on in the bus, you know? The hairspray, I'm very sensitive to smells, and that, that just like drives me crazy. Like you, I was like in youth group, and we'd be like, like 15 passenger vans, and we'd all be packed in there, and the girls would start like, you know, spraying the perfume. Oh my goodness, it wafted through the whole car. What does it say there? 
You could smell it. Why does it say that? Look at the end of verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, why does John give that little incident? Why was there, there's a lingering effect. Her worship, in a sense, rubbed off on everybody else. They saw it, they smelt it, they observed it. It had a lingering effect, a lasting effect. It was influential. Do you realize that that one act has a gospel effect? You notice what Jesus, Jesus makes a statement about this. That he doesn't say about a lot of things. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 26, 13, listen to what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. What she did will live on in infamy, will live on in memory. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she did, this beautiful thing, will be a lasting impact. It will be influential. Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment. Well, she had precious ointment, but to this day, it's the name of Mary that lives on. So here's the question. Are you influencing others with this type of worship? Think about it this way. When you walk into the room or you walk into a situation, is the fragrance of Christ dripping off you so powerfully that people know you've been in the presence of Jesus? And it just comes off you. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14-16. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other the fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. Think about your house for a moment, your household. Is your house filled with the aroma of Christ? It filled the whole house. Is your house a house of blessing, a house of worship, a house where you're praying for those in your household? Is it a place where there is worship going on? Her worship was costly, it was genuine, it was humble. It was passionate. It was influential. And there's just one verse to describe what Mary did. Verse 3. And yet there are three verses to describe how Judas responds. Judas was about to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas doesn't care about the poor. Judas was a thief. And Judas was a bully. Jesus says, leave her alone. Isn't it interesting how uncomfortable people get when true worship happens? Judas, I don't want any of this. Mary, you're making a fool of yourself. You're making a specter of yourself. This is way too much for me to handle. Why is Judas so bothered by Mary's worship? Because he knows deep in his heart he's about to betray Jesus in just a few days. It's the height of hypocrisy. He looks into the depths of his own heart and he knows I don't have that love for Jesus so I'm going to take it out on her. And that's what often happens. When genuine expressions of worship happen, people who are hypocrites have the most problem with it because they know that's lacking in their own life and so they lash out at people that are truly worshiping. And that's what Judas does here. If Jesus, if Jesus was truly valuable to Judas, he'd love Jesus. You see, Mary had a gospel-centered worship. Judas had a soul-destroying disdain, and it destroyed his very 
life. I think about this image here. Who are the two characters? Mary, Judas, and Jesus. And we know the rest of the story. Jesus, Jesus in just a few days is going to die on the cross. He's still alive at this banquet. And what does Mary do? Mary, while he's still alive, anoints him as a symbolic act of worship, knowing that he's going to die. What does Judas do? He leaves in a few days to go betray Jesus and send him to his death. The contrast could not be starker between one who was giving her all to worship Jesus and one who was a thief and a hypocrite and a treacherous betrayer. And the Passover lamb is about to be sacrificed. The very next day, the king is going to enter the town of Jerusalem on a donkey. And everyone's going to be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, hail to the king of the Jews. Mary starts it off with this beautiful act of worship. But her worship is sustained to the end. Judas hates it, and he's going to betray Jesus. The crowd's going to wave, and just a week later, they're going to be the ones crying out, crucify him. So here's the question. Is Jesus worthy of your worship? Is he truly your king? Is he the resurrection and the life? Is he the lamb of God who takes away our sins? Yes, absolutely. Then does your love for Jesus match the worth of Jesus? Is your worship costly? Is your worship genuine? Is it humble? Is it passionate? And is it influential? This Thursday, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. What better time of year than to reflect upon all the blessings that Christ has given you in himself. He showered you with blessing upon blessing this past year. Let's look at Mary's life as a model of how we can worship Jesus this week with a passionate, gospel-centered, extravagant, wholehearted display of love, attention, and devotion because he is worth it. Gotta believe he's worth it. If he's not worth it, we're wasting our time. If he is worth it, then he demands our all. And not just worship on Sundays, but in a lifestyle of worship every day. Where when we leave this place, we have the smell of Christ on us for everybody to hear, smell, see, touch. Because we love Jesus and he's worth it. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. to us the grace and the power through the Holy Spirit that this week when we leave this place with our lives 
our love for Jesus would match the worth of Jesus. And would we be the aroma of Christ to everyone that we come in contact with? And would we sit at your feet, Jesus, in sweet communion, learning your word? Show us areas in our life where we need to give up because we're holding on to things that we think are more valuable than you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be passionate. Help us to be wholly devoted to you, Jesus, as the King, as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Thank you that you grant us the grace to do that through the power of the gospel. We thank you and we praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.